Welcome to the Sunday show here at Progressive News Network, uh, otherwise known as PNN and EJR. EJR is our uh, occasional satellite show, which is the Environmental Justice Report. Uh, my name is Janine Moloff, and I am the producer and host. Hope you're having a lovely Sunday. I know that here in St. Louis, it is actually gorgeous. Uh, we get such insane weather. I mean, we're in the Midwest, so basically we can have a snowstorm one day and then 70 degrees the next. And right now that's what we have. We have about 72 degrees outside here at the end of February. Go figure. Anyway, um, if you saw, well, actually I didn't get a chance to put out the advert, okay? Uh, Facebook got kind of mad at me again. Turns out that when I made a statement about the low reading levels, the low reading comprehension levels and the low, and the subsequent low vocabulary uh, acquisition levels of most Americans, that was called hate speech by Facebook. They were threatening to kind of, you know, kick me off. Uh, again, it is what it is, all right? Uh, Facebook, just like most social media, their algorithm favors the outrageous, and especially the outrageous on the far right, you know, the, the ultra-conservatives, the neo-Nazis, and so on and so forth. Uh, I look forward to the day when, God, I just pray we get a Congress that can establish regulations again. And one of the things we need to regulate, this is just a little aside on my part, um, extemporaneously, one of the things we need to regulate is that damn algorithm and not let social media companies manipulate the algorithm. Okay, in fact, they should just take it down altogether. I'm not an IT person, but before the algorithm was changed and skewed a certain way, we could get both sides out. Now it's skewed to the point where independent media, especially if you're uh, a centrist or on the left, it's almost impossible to get out. Um, so, again, little aside there, I got ticked off at Facebook censors. I, I have a dear friend and classmate, and... Um, you know, she called, refers to Facebook as, I'm going to drop the F-bomb, so she calls it fuckbook. And, you know, she's right. That's a call out to my friend uh, here in St. Louis. Anyway, let's get to the show. So this week, this is an older show that I had planned, oh, God, I think right before New Year's, and we kept getting um, we kept having technical problems here on Blog Talk Radio, and it just got pushed aside because so much in the news is changing, like almost on an hourly basis. It's almost impossible to keep up with it. This is one, though, is the title is called Gish Gallup and Other Political Bullshit. Now, if you've never heard of Gish Gallup, I hadn't either, actually. I was watching an interview that Mehdi Hassan, journalist Mehdi Hassan, had given, and he had written a book about how to win every argument, I think it's called. And one thing he talked about was Gish Gallup. And Gish Gallup is basically the art of shoveling bullshit as fast as possible in this political sphere. Uh, we're going to talk about that today and also some ways to counter it. You know, needless to say, Trump and his GOP, they are experts at the art of throwing bullshit at opponents. At opponents. They, they use Gish Gallup all the time. And why do they do it? Anybody who uses Gish Gallup is doing it to avoid public discovery. 
in terms of the GOP, they want to avoid public discovery that Trump knows nothing, which, you know, if you listen to the monster for a few minutes, it's patently obvious that, you know, his IQ doesn't hit the triple digits, but that's another thing. Um, This is a propaganda technique, and, you know, again, the name for it is Gish Gallup, and it's been used by fascist parties for decades. Now the GOP of Trump has embraced it for the last seven, eight years as its unofficial pledge to duty. So we're going to do a big story on that. Then what we're going to do is, um, I didn't put in the advert, and I apologize, we are going to be talking about the murder of Alexei Navalny. And he was murdered. You know, for those of you that want to argue the opposite, nothing happens in Russia without Putin's approval, period. Whether it's done by an oligarch, whether it's done by mercenary armies, everything is under his thumb. Putin murdered Navalny. He ordered the hit, whatever you want to call it, but he's responsible. We have a new initiate into PNN's deplorable list. Okay. And then we have our Jackass of the Week Award, and then we have a little tribute to Randy Rainbow. So without further ado, let's move on with the show. Okay? So the Gish Gallop, you know, as I call it, the Gish Gallop and other bullshit posing as news. So I have this paper, and it explains everything. It's titled, Gish Gallop, When People Try to Win Debates by Using Overwhelming Nonsense. I have a cousin here in St. Louis that uses this technique. I don't think she's fully aware that she's using it. But, you know, she'll say, well, I read a study on Facebook that said this. And I go, okay, where did you read the study? Well, she'll say, I don't know. I mean, somebody reposted it. Now, most people, if you go to the trouble to read a study or read a a lengthy article about about serious uh, subject matter, most people will be able to remember, well, I saw it at CNN or NPR or um, Rolling Stone, the Washington Post. You'd remember some of it. She can't tell me this. Okay? And, and this gives me this nonsense, and I just want to, like, you know, punch a wall out. It's so ridiculous. So let's get into it. The Gish Gallup, I'm reading straight from this paper here. Um, and let's see, where did this paper come from? That's the thing. It was hard to find. This is, um, give me a second here. Duncan, I can't find the source. Are you kidding me? Ah, I'm sorry. Anyway, the Gish, let's get into it. Um, and then I'll post it later. So the Gish Gallup, I'm reading straight from um, this, this actual paper. Ah, I'm having a few troubles here today, guys. Give me an example. Give me a minute. Okay. So the Gish Gallup, is a rhetorical technique. And what it involves is you overwhelm your opponent with as many arguments as you can. You don't worry about accuracy. You don't worry about accuracy. You don't worry about relevance or validity of the things you're stating. It's just shoveling out as much bullshit, as verbal excrement as possible. So this is the person that says, well, you know, the study shows that, blah, 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 blah but they don't know if what they're saying is true or not. Chances are they're just making stuff up, in other words, okay? So according to this, it says, quote, for example, a person using the Gish Gallop 
might attempt to support their stance by bringing up in rapid succession a large number of vague claims, anecdotal statements, misinterpreted facts, and irrelevant comments. We've all heard this coming from Republicans, okay? They do it fast so you don't have time to even rebut it, okay? And, you know, when somebody uses vague claims, I become very suspicious, all right? I, I just do because when you're, when you're being per vague, that means nine times out of ten, you don't have any facts, in my opinion. So it goes on to say, according to this particular, this particular paper, quote, the gift gallop is also known as argument by verbosity, proof by verbosity, and shotgun argumentation, okay? Um, you know, verbosity meaning you talk a lot, for those of you that are unsure. In other words, this is a person who's going to throw as much gar verbal garbage as possible at you. They're going to call things proof that, you know, you don't know if it's proof or not. They're just claiming it's proof. They're lying, okay? And shotgun argumentation, it's like a machine gun. I've seen this done in debate as well, where there's this technique in debate where they have to get as much facts out as possible, so talking super fast. And I've always viewed this as an illegitimate strategy. Yes, there's a time limit. The time limit in a debate is established so that the debaters have to select the best argument, not everything, not offer everything, including the damn kitchen sink. Okay? So when they are shotgunning, you going so super fast. First of all, it's hard to understand what they're saying, much less figure out if what they're saying is accurate. Okay? It's a fraud. Now, where did this Gish Gallup name come from? Well, it was given the name by um, a Professor Eugenie Scott. Now, Professor Eugenie Scott was, at that point in time, the Executive Director of the National, Sci of the National Center for Science Education. Um, so I I'm going to just read it here. Let me go straight to the paper. Quote, the Gish Gallup is also known as argument by verbosity, proof by verbosity, and shotgun argumentation. It was given the name Gish Gallup by Professor Eugenie Scott, then the Executive Director of the National Center for Science Education, who used it to describe the common format of debates with Dwayne Gish, a young Earth creationist, stating that the, quote, the creationist is allowed to run on for 45 minutes or an hour, spewing forth torrents of error that the evolutionist has in the prayer of refuting in the format of a debate, end quote. Okay, it's just basically stating what I already told you, okay? You say something so fast, so rapid fire, that your opponent has no chance to even know for sure what you said because when you're speaking super rapid, very rapidly, it's hard to understand what that person is saying, and then you don't have a chance of rebutting it. It's an illegitimate uh, strategy. But it's used widely in debate. Um, so let's look at some examples of Gish Gallup, okay? So a classic example, according to this, you'll have somebody who is basically pushing what's called pseudoscience, false science, not real. And during, quote, the course of a debate with a scientific expert, bombards the expert with multiple weak arguments and switches to a new argument each time the expert appears to successfully refute one of them, end quote. Okay. That's a perfect example. I've, I've encountered people like this before. You know, they will push out some 
false arguments, you know, just blatant lies. And the minute you refute their argument, they switch subjects. And they do it rapidly because the fact is they know they're lying. Okay? Another example, I'm reading straight from the paper now, quote, another example of a gish gallop is a politician who, upon being accused of misconduct, launches into a stream of unrelated and misleading statements in an attempt to give the appearance of directly refuting the accusations, end quote. Okay. That's the entire Republican Party right there. Okay. There's also examples of gish gallops in what they call less formal context. Um, somebody who has a nonsensical stance on social media might use gish gallop. They would post like this enormous list of sources that are irrelevant, and these are sources that they didn't even read. Okay. Uh, it also could be someone who is rightfully accused. Um, oh, here we go. Uh, quote: Someone who is rightfully accused by their partner of acting in an inappropriate manner might reply with a gish gallop by responding with a stream of weak arguments to justify their own behavior and shift the blame to someone else, end quote. Okay, so the idea of using this is in live debates, you just, again, fire off so many arguments and false facts so quickly that your opponent's overwhelmed. They can't keep track of what you said, much less try to refute it. So that's how they try and score points. Um, if you're online, Gish Gallopers list these, an enormous number of sources that allegedly support their stance, but what they've probably done is they've just searched, made a search for relevant keywords that look like they apply to the discussion, and then they just click on and list all those sources they find. Whether those sources support their stance or not doesn't matter. Okay, so it's a fraud. This is a cheat. Okay. They give you an example here, quote, for example, one social media user made a post in support of the idea that yoga can cure terminal cancer. In support of this argument, they listed various papers that contain relevant keywords on the topic, such as the paper, quote, yoga for cancer patients and survivors. However, a closer inspection of this paper shows that it suggests that yoga can lead to certain improvements in the physical and mental well-being of cancer patients, but it doesn't actually propose that yoga is an effective cure for cancer, end quote. So the Gish Gallup, this is, you have these people, these politicians, other people, using this way to shovel bullshit. What they're doing is they're lying. It's a cheat. It's a set of lies. Okay? There's a note here, quote, people who use Gish Gallup often obscure the exact sources which they claim support their stance in order to make it harder to refute their arguments. I'm going to read that one again. Note, this is according to the paper, direct reading, quote, people who use, use Gish Gallup often obscure the exact sources which they claim support their stance in order to make it harder to refute their arguments. This is usually done by referring to the source in a vague way that makes it difficult to find or by referencing a long work such as a 20-page article or an hour-long video without stating which part of the work supports their stance. Let's look at some examples of arguments used in Gish Gallup. So now that this paper gives uh, specific examples of the type of flawed arguments that Gish Gallup's, um, you know, usually look like. 
Um, so this one here, the first one is, uh, let me see, yeah. Uh, this one is based on the context, quote, of someone using a gish gallop when arguing against global warming. Okay? So let me read that again. Quote, the following are specific examples of the kind of flawed arguments that gish gallops generally consist of based on the context of someone using a gish gallop when arguing against global warming. One, generalized and unsubstantiated claims that are difficult to refute. Okay. For example, quote, I saw that several recently published papers disproved global warming, so clearly many scientists don't believe that it's real. Now, this sort of vague statement is difficult to refute since without more information, there isn't a single concrete piece of evidence here that you can debunk directly as it's hard to disprove that such papers have been published, end quote. Okay, that's one way. Another way, quote, Anecdotal statements with little to no value. Quote, for example, you keep saying that global temperatures are rising, but my town got a lot of snow last week, end quote. Goes on to say, quote, this is an anecdotal piece of information which purports to disprove global warming, despite the fact that it is meaningless from both a scientific perspective as well as from a logical one, since large amounts of snow in one area don't disprove global warming. Three intentional or unintentional misrepresentation of truthful facts. For example, quote, there is a lot of debate and disagreement in the scientific community regarding whether or not there is global warming. End quote. And the next quote, quote is, quote, the truthful facts here are that there is an ongoing discussion regarding various aspects of global warming and that there are some scientists who disagree with the idea of global warming. However, the reality is that the vast majority of scientists agree that we are undergoing some form of global warming, which is why the above statement strongly misrepresents the truth. Four, outright lies. This is the Trump effect here. Quote, for example, most scientists don't believe that there is global warming. This is false since, as we saw before, the vast majority of scientists do think that there is current global warming. And on each one of these, there is like um, a source on this paper. So the vast majority of scientists do think there is global warming. And there's a paper from, I think it's the Department of Interior. Give me a second here. Okay, IOP, no, I take that back. IOP, Environmental Research Letters. Uh, there's a paper here, Consensus on Consensus, a Synthesis of Consensus Estimates on Human-Caused Global Warming, and it goes into it. So each one of these, uh, these arguments have a source. Another way they do it, quote, truthful statements that are either irrelevant to the discussion or don't provide meaningful evidence. For example, quote, it might be true that the climate is changing now, but Earth's climate has also changed many times in the past. We've seen, end quote, we've seen that one a lot. And it goes on to say, while it is true that the Earth's climate has changed many times in the past, this doesn't invalidate the fact that research shows that we are currently experiencing global warming in a way that is different than in the past. Another way they do it, a refutation of statements that no one has actually made. I'm going to read that one again. A refutation of statements that no one has actually made. It goes on to say, quote, for example, if one person says there's an increase in temperature averages across the planet, 
the Gish Galloper might reply with, quote, it's wrong to say this is the first time in history where there have been changes in the Earth's climate, end quote. It goes on to say, even though the Gish Galloper's argument is refuting a statement that no one has made, it may appear to some people as if the Gish Galloper has successfully refuted their opponent's argument. Mm. There's some more. Another way they, they use this nonsense, they can use statements that involve a lot of unnecessary technical jargon. For example, quote, global warming was debunked by a study which assessed the impact of future anthropogenic carbon emissions by examining the equilibrium of climate sensitivity with regard to the ECS2 times C point and specifically by calculating the posterior probability density functions of climate sensitivity using Bayesian inference, end quote. Wow, that, that was a mouthful. I, I, my jaw is actually tired from that one. It go, the paper goes on to say, quote, this is an unnecessarily complex way of presenting the findings of the study in question, and discussing it in this way helps hide the fact the study's findings are misrepresented here, which discourages people from trying to refute this point, particularly if they don't have a strong background in the field being discussed. Okay? Another way they use Gish Gallup, another technique, they use new versions of previous statements that are only superficially different. For example, quote, if the Gish Galloper starts by saying, you claim that there is global warming, but there was a lot of snow in New York last month, they might later follow with, quote, if there is global warming, then it would be difficult to explain why there were record snowfalls on the East Coast a few weeks ago. Both arguments are similar versions of the same anecdotal information, and neither provides meaningful evidence against global warming. Such arguments are used to easily increase the total number of arguments that the Gish Galloper appears to have at their disposal. However, in reality, they're largely the same argument that's mostly just worded differently. Another way they use the Gish Gallup, they use, quote, statements that are seemingly supported by other statements in the Gish Gallup. For example, there's a lot of scientific agreement on the topic of global warming since, as I showed earlier, we just experienced record snowfalls in some parts of the country. This provides the appearance of supporting evidence for the current argument and also attempts to validate the original argument by presenting it as if it's necessarily true. Such statements can also involve other issues like chains of circular reasoning that make the Gish Galloper's arguments appear better supported than they actually are, end quote. Okay? The Gish Gallop also involves logical fallacies. You know, in other words, um, arguments that when you run the logic are false. And the Gish Gallop itself is generally considered to be fallacious, misleading. You know, it's an illegitimate rhetorical technique. Um, it's not always considered a logical fallacy because, quote, it doesn't represent a single and specific pattern of flawed reasoning, end quote. But the flawed arguments in a Gish Gallop, according to this paper, quote, often contain various logical fallacies such as straw man arguments which distort an opposing stance in order to make it easier to attack, or something called appeals to nature, which claim that something is good because it's perceived as natural or bad because it's perceived as unnatural, end quote. And you can see that like on the global, uh, was it global warming thing? Well, you know, 
if we've always had global warming, it's natural. How could this be bad? That's kind of the argument, the logical fallacy they would use. Um, according to the paper, though, the Gish Gallup is also, quote, strongly associated with a particular type of fallacious reasoning and specifically with the assumption that just because a certain stance is backed by a large number of arguments, then that means it is necessarily correct and preferable to stances supported by fewer arguments, regardless of the validity and relevance of those arguments, end quote. So it's a long way of just saying, look, the Gish Gallup is strongly associates with certain types of fallacious reasoning because the listener would assume that, well, this person offering a gish gallop, you know, is offering so many arguments so fast, it must be true. Okay, kind of like the carnival barker, you know, just a lot of nonsense coming out of their mouths. And then when you see somebody who offers an honest argument that, you know, they just basically stick to the point at hand, you know, they're just not viewed as, as valid necessarily. And it doesn't matter that the Gish Galloper is using arguments that aren't relevant and aren't factually valid. It doesn't matter. Okay, so that's what they're really talking about here. So who uses Gish Gallops and why? Okay, so... You know, there's different people. It's, you know, one of the reasons, and they give you two main reasons why people use Gish Gallop. Reason number one is, quote, it's generally easier to raise weak arguments than it is to refute them. Accordingly, the Gish Gallop technique is often successful at overwhelming those who are committed to proper scientific discourse, especially if they are unfamiliar with this technique, end quote. In other words, you machine gun your opponent and most professionals, especially people in the sciences or whatever, they're conscientious people. So they'd have to go back and go, well, I'll have to look at the numbers again. Well, the Gish Gallup doesn't give them that time. Okay, they just machine gun them. So that's one reason people use Gish Gallup. The other reason, according to his paper, is, quote, people generally prefer simple arguments, which are easy for them to process compared to complex refutations. The Gish Gallup often contains such arguments which offer an explanation that many people find more compelling than the complex scientific explanations needed in order to refute them, end quote. Okay, this is a nice way of saying a lot of the people that like Gish Gallup and accept them because they're kind of stupid. All right, I'm just going to say it. You know, they want a simple explanation for things they find to be frustrating or frightening. Uh, and the idea of actually having to contemplate complex uh, situations, it's just too much work for them. You know, and as Americans, we're ripe for this. I mean, let's face it, this is, regardless of what the PR says, the United States has traditionally held people that are intellectual or um, with higher education levels in contempt. I mean, let's, we are an anti-intellectual society. Let's get a little real here. And so, you know, the Gish Gallup is, you don't have to think, it's for people that are intellectually lazy and, frankly, kind of childish. Okay, it appeals to the child and people. Um, they go on to explain also the Gish Galloper can walk in with what they call a prepared list of arguments that they can fire off really quickly and don't have to think about it. And if the person opposing the Gish Galloper is able to successfully uh, counter their arguments, 
then the Gish Galloper will just counter that by saying, yes, but, and then move on to the next point on their list. And that's the way to wear them down. That one cousin of mine, she does it, you know, we'll get into it because she always brings up politics. And don't get me wrong, I love her, but I'm so incredibly angry at her. And, um, you know, and she's here in St. Louis. We don't talk very much. And so, you know, she will bring up these situations and I can feel my head practically explode and I explain it out and then she goes, yeah, but. There's no yeah, but. You know, people who use a gish gallop not only are dishonest, they're childish. Okay? So, but because of that technique, the gish galloper can look like they're better prepared than they are actually and it looks like they're winning the argument when all they're doing is shoveling a bunch of lies that you'd have to go back to the table and come back with a reputation with proof. And the way they do it, you know, machine gunning, you don't have time for it. Okay? So how do you counter a gish gallop? All right? Well, it's kind of hard. All right? It, it just is. Uh, I mean, let's face it. It doesn't take much effort or intellect or expertise to produce these weak arguments. What it really requires is the willingness to be a goddamn liar. I'm just going to put it out there. I'm tired of this. I'm not going to mollycoddle. But it doesn't mean you can't actually make a gish galloper look like the liars they are. So there's, there's some things you can do. A little water here. One of the things you can do is a full rebuttal. Now, this takes time, though, and you have, to, you have to have all your facts together. So a full rebuttal, quote, consists of going over every point made by your opponent and refuting each of them individually. Now, end quote. So this is, this is considered the proper way to respond to any opponent's arguments. It's, this is legitimate. You're offer, offering refutation with facts and logic. But with a gish gallop, it's difficult to do because they have shoveled so much bullshit you just don't have time to refute every single thing they see, they do. So it's just more difficult because even if, if you fail to refute a single point uh, that if you don't, if they manage to win a single point in all that bullshit that you couldn't refute, then the Gish Galloper is going to focus on the one detail you couldn't, you couldn't refute. And then they're going to claim that that one little detail that you couldn't refute invalidates your entire refutation. Okay, so they can shovel out all this bullshit, and let's say they gave you 10 points, okay? 10 points about global warming and why they don't believe in it. You got them. You nailed them on nine of those 10 points. You had your facts together, boom, 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 but you missed one. And maybe that one you missed is just a little tiny detail that really isn't that important. They're going to say, ha, you failed on that one. That means your entire argument is false. That's what they pull. Okay? There's a gish gallop is basically the cheater's best friend. That's what it is. So another way you can try and refute them is called the sample-based rebuttal. Now, according to this paper, quote, a sample-based rebuttal consists of selecting a representative sample of your opponent's arguments, either randomly or based on some criteria, and then refuting only those arguments. Now, while this is generally easier to accomplish than a full rebuttal, 
it suffers from similar issues since it will often require much more work on the part of, on the on the person offering the refu refutation. Okay, because Galloper can just sho keep shoveling out bullshit and lies. Okay. Um, also, if you use the sample-based rebuttal, the Gish Galloper will often accuse you of, quote, cherry-picking specific arguments to refute and can always respond by drawing the attention back to arguments that weren't addressed in this rebuttal, okay? Again, the Gish Gallop is the cheaters and liars' best friend. Now, another way you can try and rebut them uh, is thematic rebuttal. Now, according to the paper, quote, a thematic rebuttal consists of identifying the main theme or themes of your opponent's arguments and arguing against that instead of focusing on their individual arguments. Now, this method is relatively effective since it allows you to address the core of your opponent's arguments while at the same time taking away the advantage that the Gish Galloper gets, into, gets from being able to, to use multiple weak arguments. Note that you can either try to formulate your, your opponent's themes for them or ask them to do it for you. Asking your opponent to explain their overall theme can be especially beneficial since it makes it harder for them to claim that you misunderstood them while also allowing for a more constructive discussion, end quote. Now, from the time I was a kid, I used this one. I was highly argumentative, surprise, surprise. I had a dear friend and, you know, her dad was the loveliest man. He really was, but he was, you know, solid Republican. And, I was a teenager, but he was just so excited that I liked to debate. He had all his books, you know, on certain political um, and economic subjects. They were all, like, you know, um, highlighted. He had certain points that he already, you know, had, uh, like, a bookmark in or whatever. And he would kind of do the gish gallop with me, you know. And I didn't have access to those same books. So the only thing I could do was first I would ask him, let me make sure I understand your core argument or your theme, if you will. And he would tell me. And then basically I would outlogic him on the logic. And he'd get so mad every single time, you know, and he'd keep pushing out his books. And this man had gone to Washington Law School. I go, but according to your core argument, which you verified this is your core argument, it doesn't, what you're saying doesn't follow. So the thematic rebuttal thing really works, especially if you get the Gish Galloper to tell you what their core argument is. That's my favorite one. There's also what's, there's some others. There's also called a grouped point rebuttal. And that it basically consists of, quote, dividing the opposing arguments into distinct groups based on some criteria, and then addressing each of these groups separately. It is therefore conceptually similar to a thematic rebuttal though its structure is slightly different since a grouped point rebuttal tends to involve a greater focus on individual arguments. Again, I had to use the thematic rebuttal as a kid because he was, you know, machine gunning me about subjects that I had not taken in school, uh, books that I had no access to. That's the only thing I had, and I won. All right, so another way to try and neutralize a Gish Galloper is called a best point rebuttal. Now, this consists of, quote, addressing only the strongest piece or pieces of evidence presented by your opponent. Here, too, similarly, in a similarly to uh, in a thematic rebuttal, you can either identify such evidence yourself or ask your opponent to do so. 
Now, the problem with this technique is that even if you successfully refute their strongest evidence, the Gish Galloper might simply fall back to the next argument on the list, which you haven't addressed, end quote. You have to remember, at the end of the day, people who use the Gish Gallop are liars and cheats. Put bluntly, that's it. And this is a strategy to make it look like they're not lying and they're not cheating, but they are. Okay, this kind of gets me every single time. Okay, so we have one more way to try and counter or neutralize a Gish Galloper, and that's called the worst point rebuttal. And that consists of, quote, addressing only the weakest pieces of evidence presented by your opponent. Doing this involves the same issues as the best point rebuttal, which can, which can be further exacerbated in, the, in this case. In addition, this technique can often be problematic since it can be viewed as a case of fallacious cherry picking and straw manning on your part. Okay, so, end quote. So, I've seen this on Twitter and Facebook as well. Uh, about a month ago, I published an article, um, and it was on the role of Ivy League colleges and how they are allowing Jewish students to be not just harassed, but assaulted and, and put in danger. Now, I've also said on the show, and I stated in the article clearly, that when it comes to the Hamas uh, war with Israel, and it is Hamas, yes, I want to see, uh, you know, a, a ceasefire. I want humanitarian aid to get in. I want a two-state solution and so on and so forth. That being said, I have a major problem. You know, I'm kind of a leftist on most issues. I have a problem with the fact that the political left won't admit that they have historically had a problem of, anti, of being anti-Semitic, because they have. In fact, the anti-Semitism of the political left has existed long before the modern state of Israel was set up in the late 1940s. Okay, they don't want to admit it. And while you can argue, you know, a Palestinian state, whatever you want to, that doesn't mean you have the right to yell death to all Jews. And on a college campus, free speech does not extend to harassment. Free speech does not extend to what, if you're legally an adult, what is uh, assault and battery. You know, I had videos of, you know, a Jewish student, a couple Jewish students being uh, basically shoved around and, and shoved on the ground by these alleged peaceful protesters. Okay. And technically, that's assault and battery. Assault happens legally when you create a situation where the person fears for their life or safety. Battery is the actual physical act. Assault's the threat. And the fact remains that free speech does not extend to assault and battery. And this article, I went into some death. It ran on, on Nation of Change and also went on Eurasia Review. And I went into the legal definitions, you know, including definitions from the Cornell Law School. Um, and I still got people on Facebook and Twitter calling me a Zionist, calling me, you know, a monster that wanted genocide, yada, yada, yada. I said none of those things. But, you know, and one of the things they accused me of getting to the point here is a couple accused me of cherry picking the facts. Where did you get those facts? You know, well, 
all my sources were cited in the article. All you do is click on them, okay? But they accused me of cherry picking, which I did not do, okay? Um, and that's why I brought that particular situation up because, again, I've been accused of cherry picking when I didn't. But these techniques are used by liars and cheats. They just are, okay? Now, according to this paper, the most, they consider the most effective techniques to neutralize a Gish Galloper, the thematic rebuttal, and the group point rebuttal. Okay, so there's some other considerations you have when countering uh, a Gish Gallop. Um, and it says, quote, in general, the strength of the Gish Gallop technique lies in the fact that it frames the course of the debate and creates a false appearance of credibility and control. Because this gives an inherent advantage to the Gish Galloper, your best course of action is to avoid playing their game in the first place. Okay, so what they go on to say is, in other words, you shouldn't let the other person even begin down that road. You should stop them as soon as they start giving multiple invalid arguments and just start machine gunning them back, refuting their arguments right away. Sometimes it's just not viable though. Okay, so you know, to summarize this, the Gish Gallop, put bluntly, is an illegitimate strategy uh, used in debate and in politics. And frankly, it, it's a best friend for liars and cheats, what it is. Okay? So right now I'm going to take a little break here and get a drink, and I'm going to play our little theme. we're back okay so there's some other logical fallacies that you can find um, but anyway we're going to talk a little more about Gish Gallop uh, and something else called Bryn bundling again these are techniques used by politicos that are liars and cheats put bluntly uh, this is a piece written by Michael Bunker it was published February 9th of 22. Um, I guess it's his blog. And the headline is Bunker Logic and Reason Lesson, a twofer, the Gish Gallop and Bryn Bundling. So he gives these logical lessons here. Um, and you know, he basically says, quote, the Gish Gallop is a style of debate or argumentation that involves throwing the kitchen sink at the opponent. It is a rapid vomiting I like that term. It is a rapid vomiting of a large number of fallacious arguments all at one time, so numerous that the one trying to refute it is buried under so much nonsense, it becomes nearly impossible to sort through it all. It may look something like this, and then he gives an argument. Quote, the reason you hate proven and trustworthy medical advice is because you want women and old people to die. Your worship of freedom over obedience to legitimate authorities who know more than you comes from your hatred of people who are smarter than you and know what is best, who know what is best for you. So you are willing to kill off, kill off everyone else to prove that an actual medical doctor doesn't know more than your Aunt Bestie who watches Fox News and Googles what is the best essential oil to use against Ebola, end quote. 
Okay, so the Gish Galloper threw all these fallacies at him at once. Um, again, it's just nonsense. You, they, this guy uh, basically compares the Gish Gallop to using the octopus method. Um, you know, basically, he explains that an octopus, when it feels threatened, just like spews all this ink, hoping that it's going to blind or disorient his enemy so they can escape. Okay? Uh, and Bonker goes on to say, quote, for this reason, formal debate requires rules and agreed upon initial petition. Let me start again. For this reason, formal debate requires rules and agreed upon initial position in which each side agrees to use the rules to honestly argue that particular position, the, the particular position, end quote. Having a little fluency issue here today, guys. So, the Gish Gallop, according to Mr. Bunker, is different from what's called Bryn Bundling, okay? And in that quote, although the Gish Gallop is usually an ad hominem attack, and then he explains an ad hominem attack is, quote, an attack on the person or group rather than an honest discussion of the issues, quote, it usually groups together, the Gish Gallop, that is, charges that are then attached to a group of persons. Um, and you can see that with the whole Hamas-Israel situation, okay? Uh, you know, the far right is worse about it, but let's face it, there are people on the far left that rather than argue the very serious issues about Hamas and Gaza and the two-state solution, all of that, what they do is they just attack all Jews, even though the majority of Jews in Israel actually are against what the Netanyahu government's doing. They attack all Jews as Zionists and as racists. And for instance, here in St. Louis, my congressperson, Cori Bush, displays her ignorance of our community on a daily basis. Um, she is one of the politicians on the left that associates uh, Zionism with racism. And here in the Midwest, when you say Zionism, people think Judaism. And then she goes on to explain that how the Palestinians are a community of color and Jews are white oppressors. Well, here's the thing. And she goes back to the idea of Ashkenazi Jews, so I'm kind of give, going off a little bit here. The majority of Jews in Israel aren't Ashkenazi and they don't look white. The majority of them are Mizrahi. And you, I could line up pictures of Mizrahi Jews and Palestinian Muslims and you would be, they all look like people of color. You would be hard-pressed to figure out who was the Jew and who was the Muslim. Seriously. Who was the Israeli and who was the Palestinian? It's impossible. Okay? But, again, equating Jews with white oppressors is intellectually easier for Cori Bush. And that's what she's doing. She's basically blaming an entire group of people for the actions of some. You say I'm not voting for her. Um, so let's look at Bryn Bundling. It's similar to Gish Gallup, but according to Mr. Bunker, quote, instead of focusing on specific issues all lumped together to throw at an opponent, an oppo at an opponent the Bryn Bundle is similar to the straw man fallacy in that the one doing the Bryn Bundling creates a cardboard cutout enemy out of whole cloth and then launches fallacious fire at the pretend enemy and so the actual person he or she is debating. Now, Bryn Bundling is named after author David Bryn, who is famous for using the tactic. 
In this ploy, the Bryn Bundler creates a pretend foe who has all, the, all of the attributes of everyone he hates and projects them onto the person he is defeating, even if none of those attributes or opinions apply. So even if the accusations he lobs are not true of the particular so even if the accusations he lobs are not true of the particular person he's debating, he doesn't care. Okay. It's kind of like what Cori Bush did. You know, she, you know, lobbed everything at all Jews and anybody who dared speak up. Okay. So when I published my article, there were people that went after me. And if they'd actually read the article from beginning to end, they'd find out I was doing my best to try and be fair because I find the entire situation so incredibly just just horrible. And it, I feel torn, okay, because I want to see true justice and fairness. But when it comes to fellow Jews, they're still my people. But I went out of the way to be fair. But it didn't matter because the people that labeled me as a racist, white, oppressor, Zionist, genocidal, maniac, yada, yada, they hadn't read my article at all. I knew that. Because if they had, they would have known that the whole article centered on, yes, you can support free speech, but you can't target a group because that becomes basically a hate crime. You know, not all Jews support Netanyahu, whether in Israel or here in the United States. And they're just attacking Jews, period. That's, that's it. And, um, you know, it, it just, it, it galled me, frankly. You know, when you look at the situation, and I have progressive friends that go, yes, to the Palestinians. I'm not, I'm not saying I want to see Palestinian children get hurt. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is if after, to give you an example, if after 9-11 the left kept saying don't blame all Muslims for the actions of some, that was fine. But you don't hear the same idea expressed towards Jews. You don't hear them say don't blame all Jews for the actions of some at all. And the fact is the left doesn't like being called out on their own hypocrisy. Anyone's capable of being a hypocrite. But you have leaders on the left that, you know, basically view themselves as, they, I think they have a messiah complex or something. Seriously. And I knew these people hadn't read my article because they had. They couldn't be able to make that argument. But anyway, I digress. Back to the Bryn Bundlers. It's a way of um, scapegoating somebody. So here's the example he gives. Quote, you tell people to drink bleach and inject horse poisons, and then you wonder why nobody takes you seriously. You hate women for the same reason you hate other races, because you long for the 1950s when you could walk down the street and everyone had to bow to you and go make you a sandwich or get strung up. That is why your ilk whacked Malcolm X. You think that if the government tells you to wash your hands, or if you go to the bathroom or wear a seatbelt, that suddenly you are a blue-faced braveheart on horseback facing down Trotsky, Stalin, Longshanks. So welcome to the Taliban and Gilead and get our women wearing robes and helmets and let's all lick the infected to prove we are really masculine, end quote. This is what this guy wrote, not me. The fact is the Bryn Bundler doesn't care what the truth is, okay? They just want to throw garbage at the person that is in their way, okay? 
and they throw a lot of it. So I would just say that the Bryn, the Bryn bundle is a way of scapegoating your opponent. Okay. And you know, uh, he ends his article, and this is a really good couple lines. Uh, Bunker says, "Quote: Logic and reason are not your enemy." They are the enemy of those who have no trouble lying in order to sow more hatred, division, and strife, end quote. And he's very right. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to take another break here. I'll be back in a second. And we're back. Hopefully my voice will hold up. So now we're going to talk about Navalny. Okay. Let's be honest about this. Alexei Navalny was murdered. And it was Vladimir Putin that ordered the mafia hit. That's it. And Navalny's crime was wanting real and fair elections in Russia. You know, the bottom line is this. Nothing happens in Russia without Putin's approval. He rules with an iron fist. The oligarchs don't do, dare do anything without Putin's approval. The same with the military. The same with the police. You know, Vladimir Putin is nothing more than a mafia boss. He's a criminal. That's it. He was old KGB, and, you know, the old thing was once KGB, always KGB. KGB was the secret police in the Soviet Union. They were a bunch of not only spies, they were a bunch of assassins, put bluntly. There is nothing legitimate about Putin's rule. And the fact that the Republicans are all licking his boots because they want to be Trump's veep or whatever is outrageous. Everybody that was connected and aided and abetted, even the most minor way, not only January 6th, but aided and abetted Trump basically giving the bank to Putin, every single one of them needs to be criminally investigated, charged, prosecuted, and, yes, incarcerated. And what would the, what would the charge be for most of these Republicans? Treason. Treason. You know, now Trump's on the campaign trail and he wants to get rid of NATO. NATO is a treaty that we signed on to after World War II. No individual president has the right to pull us out of it. And NATO became necessary because the Russians were eyeing everything. Russia, what he called the Soviet Union, Russia, they have a history of attacking other European states and, having, and, and taking them over. That's it. It's really that simple. And if Ukraine falls, the rest of Europe is next. So any Republican that doesn't want to send money to Ukraine to help the Ukrainians, they need to be criminally investigated because they could be traitors. Russia is an enemy state. They have always been a Rush, an enemy state since the end of World War II. Period. This isn't rocket science. Just isn't it? It makes my blood boil. So 
this is a piece from the Kennan Institute, and it's just remembering Navalny. Uh, and it was written by Yulia Navalnaya. Okay. Um, man, let me get that straight here. I don't want to get this wrong. Been hard finding sources, people. I'm going to tell you that all of a sudden things are getting really difficult to to locate here. So, yeah. So let's look at this piece. All right. It's titled Navalny's Heroism in the Face of Putin's Revenge. Okay. I'm just going to read it. Quote, the murder of Alexei Navalny was not an act, but a process. It took several years. Putin's attempt to poison Navalny in 2020 with the nerve agent Novichok was preceded by years of stalking by FSB officers. When he survived the near-fatal poisoning, Putin put him in prison for 19 years. Incarceration in a Russian prison is not just a restriction of freedom, but a humiliating and physically intolerable existence. The daily routine is rigid. Only at certain times are you allowed to go out for fresh air, to sit down, to lie down, or to read. Moreover, Navalny also spent almost a year in a punishment cell under very harsh conditions. He was sent there on ridiculous pretexts for a button left unbuttoned for washing his face at the wrong time, end quote. I am not kidding. I'm reading straight from this piece, going back to the piece, quote, shortly before his death, he was transferred to the Polar Wolf Penal Colony north of the Arctic Circle. This is the realm of night and cold. In one of his letters, Navalny wrote that not a single leaf could be seen through the window of his cell and that he was not taken outside for a walk only to a neighboring cell. In this penal colony, Alexei's ability to receive and send letters was limited. Putin wanted to isolate him. Quote, who needs him? If we wanted to poison him, we would have finished him, end quote, was Putin's answer to a question about Navalny in December 2020 when Alexei, who had been poisoned by Putin, was in a Berlin clinic. Now it was time to finish him. On the day of Navalny's death, Putin seemed happy. The next part is titled, An Autocrat's Revenge. Quote, why kill a political rival when he stands no chance of getting out of prison in Putin's lifetime? The first motive is personal, revenge. Navalny showed everyone that the emperor had no clothes, that Putin is an old man, greedy, with bad taste, in parentheses his palaces, and unbridled lust for power. Putin could not forgive Navalny for this humiliation and for the fact that Navalny was not afraid of him at all. However, there was also a second political motive. Since the mid-2010s, Navalny had become Putin's main political rival, a man who represented another version of Russia's political future, future, another possible trajectory for its development. He started out as a politician for the generation of 20 to 30-year-olds. Like many others, he made mistakes early on, such as supporting a nationalist agenda and the war in Georgia, but he moved on from these positions to fervently wanting a better future for Russia and gradually becoming and gradually became a universally respected figure. I had conversations with Alexei, and I can say with certainty that had he been at the helm during the transition period, he would definitely not have become a dictator autocrat. He understood and repeatedly said that the most important thing was to build the institutions of a sustainable democracy. 
In his last years in prison, he thought a lot about the opportunity Russia had missed in the early 1990s and how not to miss the next one. After 27 years in prison, Nelson Mandela won the Nobel Peace Prize, became president of South Africa, and lived for another 23 years. Navalny seemed destined to follow a similar path, and that is exactly what Putin wanted to avoid. The Russian regime is worse than South African apartheid. It prevented Navalny from going down that road. Putin feared a free Navalny. His ideas would have been very popular in a free state with real political competition. Thanks to social media, his messages from prison spread widely. It was clear that every it was clear to everyone what he was in prison for and why. The extent to which Putin wanted to silence Navalny can be seen in the unprecedented arrest of his, of three of his lawyers who were helping Alexei communicate with the outside world. They were accused of participating in an extremist community led by the defendant and placed on the list of extremists. Two other lawyers were arrested in absentia. Putin's three wars, the next section. This, I know this sounds outrageous, and unfortunately it's all true. Mm. Quote, Putin is waging war on three fronts. One is against Ukraine. The second is against the West. And the third is against Russians who want a different future for themselves and their country from the one Putin has prepared. Navalny knew how to change minds and was good at dispelling the despair and sense of hopelessness that so frequently afflict the Russian opposition. He knew very well the most powerful weapon of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. Navalny, Navalny in his actions, epitomized the words of Steve Biko, the South African anti-apartheid fighter and victim of the apartheid government. And apparently Biko said, quote, change the way people think and things will never be the same again, end quote. The more the senseless deaths in Russia's war against Ukraine piled up, the stronger grew the anti-war semitism, uh, the anti-war sentiment, I'm sorry, in Russia, and the better the chances for Navalny. Putin had something to worry about. Putin creates fear and feeds on it. He started prosecuting Navalny in 2009, but in 2013, when the case came to court, Putin was still afraid to put Navalny in jail. He was given a suspended sentence. Throughout the 2010s, Navalny gained more and more political skills. His influence on people grew in parallel with the growing obsolescence of Putin's regime. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> it took a war to prolong the life of that regime. Moreover, the political project embodied by Navalny, which at first seemed insignificant to Putin, gradually became a major political threat to him. Putin then decided to resort to poisoning. However, Navalny survived the 2020 episode, investigated his assassination attempts, spoke to the poisoners, and returned to Russia, quote, do you dare kill me, end quote, Navalny seemed to have asked. Quote, I'm not afraid of you, he told Putin, insulting him, notes the journalist Arkady Ostrovsky. Times of terror. Russia, where it has become possible to poison and imprison a Navalny, is a different country from before. A major war has become possible has become possible. The level of repression has increased dramatically. The country where it's become possible to kill a Navalny is a completely different country, even compared to 22-23. This is the beginning of a new era in which acts of terror will be carried out with extreme brutality. Russia today is, is a dictatorship that has maintained 
not by bribery, not by deception, but literally by terror, by the fear of being killed. I'm going to read that sentence again because this is the central theme in my opinion. Quote, Russia today is a dictatorship that is maintained not by bribery, not by deception, but literally by terror, by the fear of being killed. Now, there will be even fewer people in the world who think it is possible to talk to Putin. For many in Russia and in the world, he has lost all legitimacy as president. Agreements about the future of Russia will be made at a table where murderers are not allowed, should Russia ever move toward becoming a normal country. Navalny's main aim was to dispel the illusion that it was impossible, that the struggle was hopeless, there was no point even in trying. In the early 2010s, he gave Russia a taste, Russians a taste for politics again. This forced the Kremlin to move more quickly toward a repressive regime, one in which politics was forbidden. In the last decade of his life, Navalny started to count, sought to counter advancing repression by restoring a taste for resistance. Navalny believed that Russia could become a normal democratic country. He rejected the idea that Russians were condemned to live under a dictatorship. He rejected the cynical, everyone steals and there is no truth, and urged Russians of all walks to think that the democratic ideal was feasible in Russia. We're almost done. Quote, if he turns out to be right, he will become a founding father of democratic Russia, someone who sacrificed his life for this ideal and did everything to bring it closer. Closer. Future Russian history books will take note of a hero who challenged a 21st century czar. We can be proud of him and learn from his example what it means to be a citizen. There is no democracy without the founding fathers, end quote. It's a really good article. Okay, going to take a break, and then we're going to move on to a couple different things. One, we've got our trader of the week, or deplorable, if you will. Uh, after that, we have our jackass of the week, and then we'll complete with Randy Rainbow. So give me a second. And we're back. Okay. So we have our new trader of the week, or our deplorable. This was uh, based on an article I found in New Republic. And this guy, there's this, they call him a conservative activist. Um, he's a neo-Nazi. Okay, his name's Jack Posobiec. And he became a Twitter, or rather, ex-phenomena because he kept reposting a lot of this crap and Elon Musk wholeheartedly endorsed it. And apparently, just recently, there was another meeting at CPEC, because this article in New Republic was dated February 23rd, 2024. And the title is MAGA Republican Pledges, get this, End of Democracy to Rabid Cheers at CPAC. Republicans of CPAC 2024 are openly vowing to take down democracy. That itself is treason. You can't get it any plainer than that. And Posobiec is the guy who popularized the Pizzagate conspiracy theory. 
he appeared uh, at CPAC the opening day, spoke apparently uh, during a panel that was moderated by, get this, former White House advisor and white supremacist Steve Bannon. No shock there. Posobiec was quoted saying, quote, welcome to the end of democracy. We are here to overthrow it completely, end quote. That's what Posobiec said at the event. He went on to say, quote, we didn't get all the way there on January 6th, but we will endeavor to get rid of it and replace it with this right here, end quote. He said, gesturing to the crowd and holding up his fist. And then Bannon laughed and said, amen. And then Posobiec was quoted saying, quote, quote, all glory is not to government, all glory to God. Okay. Um, so basically, let me find this tweet. No, wait a minute. Here it is. I want you to hear this crap. Really, something. This is Posobiec. All right, welcome. Welcome. I just wanted to say, look, welcome to the end of democracy. <laughs> we are here to overthrow it completely. We didn't get all the way there on January 6th, but we will, we, we will endeavor to oh, oh, get rid oh, of it and replace it with, with this right here. We'll replace it with this right, right here. Amen. All right, welcome. Okay. You can't get more direct than that. CPAC is the conservative wing of the, the Republican Party. They, they said the quiet part out loud. And when people show you who they are, you should believe them. They want to overthrow democracy itself and put in a theocracy, I presume would be white Christian supremacy, with women being treated worse than they already are. Okay? So... That is our deplorable. I couldn't find music, like villainous music, but I will work on that for next week. Now we're going to get to our Jackass of the Week Award. Give me a second, folks. Okay. Give it a second. It's a little slow today. Welcome to PNN's Jackass of the Week Award. Rayon Jack. Oh, my goodness. You never sounded more intelligent, seriously. Okay, so our jackass of the week very shortly is, drumroll please, Congressman James Comer, who was stupid enough to think that we would believe believe his lame excuses regarding the perjured testimony of Mr. Smirnov. Smirnov was the guy that the Republicans used to, uh, to try and um, uh, convict not only Hunter Biden, but also to try and push uh, a successful impeachment of Joe Biden as well. Shmirnov got caught. You know, they, the FBI got the information on him that basically he perjured himself, that what he was saying was not true. And now you see James Comer on the on the news go, well, well, you know, we just, I wasn't even sure who the witness was. I mean, we just took the word for it. You know what? Inexcusable. That's the thing. He is the chair of a congressional committee. He didn't have to let Shmirnov even appear. That was his responsibility. So once again, you know, he just didn't know, and a bunch of my Republican comrades said, we didn't know who, the, who the, the witness was or that they were possibly not telling the full truth. And all I can say to that is bullshit. And so for that, James Comer gets our Jackass of the Week Award. He couldn't be any more effing stupid. 
But don't worry, Jack. We're hoping that someday there's a nice sell for you in Gitmo, and I'm sure that Mr. Comer looks quite fetching in orange. Okay. So that's most of our show for today. We've got one more thing. This is Randy Rainbow. And, um, you know, it's hard to find new stuff. I don't think Randy Rainbow's putting out many much new stuff anymore. But this one kind of got my attention. This one is called You're Making Things Up, and it's about the Donald. So let me get this going. Here we go. Here's the bottom line. We've got to keep our country safe. You look at what's happening. You look at what's happening in Germany. You look at what's happening last night in Sweden. Sweden. Who would believe this? Sweden. Hey, Siri. I have no f***ing idea. They took in large numbers. They're having problems like they never thought possible. He just told a lie. Nothing happened last night in Sweden. Folks, we were left a mess like you wouldn't believe. That mess that I was left by Obama. You're making things up again, Donald. You're searching the truth again, and you know it. Don't be like Kelly and Donald, because a lie is a lie. You're making things up again, Donald. You're eating the facts and then shitting up fiction. Please just stop doing that, Donald, or we're all gonna die. Um, regarding your tiny little baby temper tantrum, is that the press or as you call it, fake news? Aren't you concerned, sir, that you are undermining the First Amendment? The public doesn't believe you people anymore. Now, maybe I had something to do with that. I don't know. But they don't believe you. If you were straight and, and told it like it is, I would be your biggest booster. I would be your biggest fan in the world. And uh, if I may, what is your response to the headlines claiming that your White House is in total chaos? It's zero chaos. We are running. This is a fine-tuned machine. Now, obviously, this is about when Trump was running for re-election in 20, but back to it. I won. I won. I mean, it's story after story after story. You're ambling endlessly, Donald. You sound like my drunk ass, Susanna Thanksgiving. You can't just say what you want, Donald. You're talking straight out of your hole. Making things up again.
somebody basically spew a bunch of bullshit, call them out on it. Tell them, don't use the gish gallop on me. And watch their faces go, what? Huh? Call them out on it. Call them out as liars. Call them out as cheats. Because that's what they are. And that's because that's all they have are lies. They have nothing else to offer. By the way, do yourself a favor. Call Congress. The number is 1-202-224-3121. Yes, I have it committed to memory. And give these Republicans some hell. But also give some of these cowardly Democrats some hell say, you need to be fighting for us. Because make no mistake about it. The GOP is controlled by Trump, and Trump and his acolytes, they are determined to implement a dictatorship. And, you know, some of these super rich people like Elon Musk thinking, well, this is going to be great for them. No, Trump operates like a mafia boss. You know, he'll just call in these, these billionaires and just say, I, I heard this on another show. I forget who it was. Um, I th- oh, I think it was Michael Cohen that actually explained. He's just going to basically line them up and say, okay, Elon, how much money are you worth? And Elon will say something like, well, so many billion. Wrong. And he'll start breaking his toes to the point where the only answer that Elon can come up with, for example, is accurate, is zero. Because Donald, he's going to sign, sign this paper and sign it all over to the mafia boss. Because that's what Donald Trump is. He's a liar. He's a cheat. He's a Nazi. And he is a criminal, just like Putin. People, wake up. I'm not going to say God bless us because, frankly, I don't know. Um, grow a pair. And I would say that anybody who is a minority, whether you're a member of a community of color, a religious minority, uh, an uppity woman, a member of the LGBTQ uh, community, intellectuals, artists, anybody that Trump and his minions hate, we need to arm ourselves. The reason why the conservative Republicans love the Second Amendment so much has nothing to do with the Second Amendment. They want to be able to go hunting for humans like they did on January 6th. And the only way to stop them is for all of us to also arm ourselves and let it be known to these assholes, we won't fire the first shot. We'll wait for you to do that. And then our retaliation will be immediate, it will be overwhelming, and it will be final. With that, I say good night and God bless us because we're going to need it.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.